Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You end up with a kind of just maddening reality that I have seen in recent years of, well, he may be a rapist, but he's really good on biblical inerrance. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined today again by my co-hosts, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, Pope Francis calls surrogacy despicable and suggests we ban it. Also, why doesn't Russell Moore ever punch left? And politics in the pulpit, literally. What do we make of President Joe Biden's speech at Charleston's historic Emanuel AME Church? So stay with us. All right, Russell and Nicole, welcome back. Hello. Hello. So we predicted that this year was going to be exciting, and 2024 so far has not disappointed. We had fiery words on Monday from Pope Francis about surrogacy. He said that unborn children must not be turned into objects of trafficking, and he called the practice despicable. Um, this is what he said, actually. He said, I consider despicable the practice of so-called surrogate motherhood, which represents a grave violation of the dignity of the woman, the child, and based on the exploitation of situations of the mother's material needs. He went on to say that a child should never be the basis of a commercial contract, and he called for a global ban, quote, to prohibit the practice universally. Currently, the practice is illegal in Italy already. It's restricted in a number of other European countries. It's legal, including legal paid surrogacy in a number of places like Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Joining us to talk about this is Charles Camosi. Charles Camosi, welcome to The Bulletin. It's great to be with you. Well, I I don't want to assume that our listeners even know exactly what we're talking about. So maybe before we do anything else, could you just tell us what's the Pope talking about when he says surrogacy is a problem? What is it that he wants to ban? It's the process by which a mother who is not the biological mother of the child conceived by sperm and ova gestates the child, right? Becomes a surrogate mother for that child, at least in terms of pregnancy. And it is interesting, isn't it, that we would even need to ask that question in the United States because, as you mentioned in your intro, this is a well-known problem in many other places, including very many European places. And then you could even further divide it. Are we talking about surrogacy that's part of IVF, right, is another part of this? Are they donor gametes, donor ova and sperm coming from people who aren't the parents? So there are lots and lots of questions to answer here. The primary thing he's concerned about, it seems from his remarks, though he's concerned beyond this, is the fact that it's commercial surrogacy, right? It's part of what he describes as a consumerist throwaway culture. And that's something I've been really trying to help, especially critics of Pope Francis, see as a really helpful way to look at so many of our problems in bioethics, part of a consumerist throwaway culture. How is this often practiced then in the United States when people are saying that I'm using a surrogate? What's a typical situation in which somebody would pursue one? Again, it's important, I think, to make distinctions. One fairly typical situation, couples get married later in life. If they get married earlier in life, they withhold having children until later in life or the desire to have children, the practice of trying for children until later in life. 
And then it turns out, uh, in many cases, it's very difficult to have a child without a surrogate mother, without in vitro fertilization, without either using their own gamete, sperm and ova, and creating the child in a laboratory, or using somebody else's, either sperm, ova, or both. So responding to the pain of infertility is a big part of what's going on here, and I think we need to be extremely aware of the pain of infertility. I can tell you some stories from my own life about that. It's real. It's important. We need to name it. We need to deal with it. We need to be compassionate. Two other ways we might talk about. One is same-sex couples, gay or lesbian couples. This is the primary way that would happen, especially for gay couples, two men who obviously need a surrogate mother to have a child. And then increasingly, though I don't think we're quite there yet, for those of you who have seen the great John X movie Gattaca, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We talk about designer babies, right? This idea that we might have surrogate motherhood and donated gametes, perhaps even genetically altered gametes, be the primary way we procreate or reproduce. Reproduction was probably a better word for it. Product is right in the word, which is relevant to the Pope's critique here, right? Thinking about the child being a basis of a commercial contract makes the child into a product. And so those are the three primary places I think surrogacy is thought about. Is this one of those issues where the Catholic Church is generally more concerned and restrictive because of their rules about birth control, or is this something that's more significant? Uh, I think this is more significant than just that. I think that what you see here is that often, and, and Charlie and I have worked together on pro-life issues for a long time, and one of the things that I've noticed over the past several years is that Often among those of us who are evangelicals, there is a no abortion, no problem mentality, which is to say, as long as there is not an abortion, then that means that the bioethical questions are really irrelevant. And that's why you will have very little, for instance, conversation among evangelicals about in vitro fertilization, much less surrogacy, cloning, some of these other questions. Because people say, well, there's not a Bible verse about it. So we really can't speak to it. Where in Catholic thought, there's a much more developed understanding of applying a sense of human dignity, of seeing a human being as gift, not as product, which is key here. Charlie alluded to uh, a few moments ago. And that's one of the reasons I think why if you look at the abortion debate itself, for instance, Roman Catholics were so far ahead of evangelical Christians. Christianity Today had a symposium in 1968 about abortion, and the conclusion was, ah, who knows, <laughs> essentially. And Roman Catholics did know, and it's because they'd already thought these things through. Charlie, I'm wondering, when you look at this comment by Pope Francis, how far do you think these sorts of questions go into the minds of average Catholic churchgoers, much less beyond that, to other Christians. And what should all of us learn about the way that Catholics go about thinking through these things? I've thought about both those questions a lot, Russell, as you might imagine. And maybe in the subtext of your question is there's a lot of things that the church teaches that popes have taught that Catholics simply ignore. <laughs> the unqualified ban on contraception is definitely one of them. Catholics tend to ignore the things that they find inconvenient in the church's teaching. But one of the things that I think helps, and this is one reason I have some critiques of the Pope, as many Catholics do, I have critiques of every Pope. <laughs> They're not God or anything like that. But what I've tried to do is really rehabilitate Pope Francis on these sets of issues, because he can speak, with regard to your second segment, in a way to the left, especially the Catholic left, in a way that they can actually hear on these questions. So when 
Pope Francis is the guy saying, I want to ban surrogacy. Like it's deplore. It's a deplorable practice. It treats children like the basis of a consumer contract. It treats them like products again. He can actually be heard, especially by young people who haven't necessarily made up their mind on these questions. And with regard to your second question, Russell, I, I just saw the other day about a startup company that wants to make on a mass level artificial wombs. We're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination, but this is already in the mind of many people. I honestly, as a Gen X boy, I can't get the 1990s movie Gattaca out of my head. I, I often ask my bioethics students at the end of the semester, show them that we have a little party, you watch Gattaca together. And I say, can you think of any way we can put our foot in the ground here and avoid going to Gattaca where every sort of legitimate birth is a birth that uses this kind of method of artificial technologies? And it's given the trajectory we're on, the one that Pope Francis calls out here, it's difficult to see how we stop going there. So we really need to pause and think, is this the way we want to go? I, you nailed, nailed it with the language of gift. Catholics, I think most evangelicals, so many others um, who claim Christ as Lord, know in their heart that having a child is a gift from God. It's not something we're owed. It's not something that we should be purchasing on the open market. It's not something that is the right of individuals. But our surrounding culture is sure thinks that way. And so this is a really central question for us to think hard about. Yeah, I'm struck, Charlie, by the statement that you made earlier about the pain of infertility. And for me, hearing such a strong statement about surrogacy in light of such an open statement from the Pope on the blessing of same-sex marriages and unions in the sense that they can participate in worship— felt very much directed at women. It felt to me, hearing that message, that if you're a same-sex couple out there, you're okay. But if you're a woman struggling with what many women struggle with, this pain of infertility, you are not allowed to have options. And in general, I think whenever religious groups talk about women's bodies, there has to be a note of the level of complexity. We cannot talk about this issue without talking about the deep emotional complexities that have been fostered in our society. And I think women who have used surrogates would hear this message as condemnation in the sense that I personally, as a mom and as a woman who has had my own children and also struggled with infertility, I personally think this is way too complicated to make a bl blanket statement. It's very complex. I think about women who have asked their sisters to carry babies for them. I think about surrogates that I know who have agreed to do this, in some cases because they needed the money. So I'm only bringing these issues out to say it's very complex, but I think it's especially complex for women and especially complex for women who have either gone down the surrogacy route or have considered it because of their own challenges and concerns in marriage. So where do we find the voice of women in these conversations? And how do we affirm the role that women play in having children as we think through the ethical implications of surrogacy? Those are really super helpful challenges and the basis of lots of important discussions that would take semesters to really unpack. I'm really glad you raised it. I do think looking at the language again is helpful because he does have women in mind here very much. So he he says the deplorable practice of so-called surrogate motherhood represents a grave violation of the dignity of women. He puts women first, the woman, right, and child, which is actually one of the reasons why so many countries in Europe have deep restrictions and even bans on surrogacy. I doubt many of them have a deeply Christian 
a theology of the gift of a child from God, right? At the mostly, it's exploiting women that they're concerned about, and many of the charges have been led, legal charges against surrogacy in Europe have been led by women precisely because of these practices. Now, someone with your concerns, I imagine, might say, that's fine. Let's just keep the consumerism out of it. Let's keep the exploitation out of it. What's wrong with a sister, as you mentioned? And Mm -hmm. let's just, no money should exchange hands. Let's not make it a consumer exchange. That's really important. That is something that those who have my view and the view of the Holy Father need to wrestle with. And it's frankly difficult. And I wrestled with it personally, and my Mm -hmm. wife and I have wrestled with this. We always wanted to adopt children. I embarrassingly brought that up on our second date. I got way too aggressive on that second date. Would you like to adopt children? (laughs) Seems like an inappropriate question. But we also wanted to be open to God's will working in our lives for biological children and with very great hope about that. And for several years, many years, it wasn't happening. And we went to Catholic clinics, right? Catholic clinics who wanted to help us with our infertility, right? That was a very key point of what they were about. But they weren't IVF clinics and they wouldn't do surrogacy for reasons that are related to the Pope's remarks. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we just have to decide whether we believe in the principle or not. Is it the case that sex and procreation ought to always be connected. If one has that Catholic view, then this is why we say no surrogacy, even in those cases where there's tremendous pain and there's tremendous, and that pain is real and so important. But there are ways, if one is not called to that particular vocation to have a biological child, if one does not receive that gift from God, there are plenty of other ways to do this. We ended up adopting three children from an orphanage in the Philippines and then got pregnant (laughs) a a year and a half later. Not discounting the pain, not because I lived it for many years. We lived it for many years. It may be that God is calling us to something else, right? It may be that God is calling us to something else. One other quick thing I've been thinking about lately because I'm at the Creighton University School of Medicine. I've been thinking a lot with physicians and other kinds of healthcare providers. And one thing that I've learned from some of my colleagues in this new space is just what an incredible connection the pregnant woman has with the baby, right? It's just an astonishing, the scientific and biological evidence that even the exchange of cells between mother and baby here, like the cells apparent of the child apparently stay inside the mother for her whole, the whole rest of her life. And that tellingly and movingly, this happens in the cases of miscarriages and abortions. And there's even some evidence, I guess, that needs more study, but that these cells migrate to places in the body to like maybe help stimulate the breast to start making milk. Or even if there's a C-section, some of them end up by the scar. <laughs> like you just, there's so much interesting stuff to learn about this. But the bottom line is what an incredible, I sometimes think of Mary and Jesus this way, Catholics tend to do, right? <laughs> but to focus on this, the amount of intimacy between a mother and her child in this regard, and the amount of intimacy between Mary and, and, and Christ, it's unbelievable. And so what are we doing here? What are we saying about, you know, if we call them a gestator or a surrogate, it's almost like a downplaying of that just wildly intimate relationship. The person is, in a very real way, a mother of that child being pregnant with them. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of the things I think about when this sort of question comes up. We think we know a lot, and we do know a lot, but the extent to which we don't understand the psychological impacts and the spiritual impacts and 
what it means that we are spiritual embodied creatures where none of this happens in a vacuum. And what strikes me as so dangerous about the, the concept of surrogacy is it's all disconnected. And you, so you can turn it into this highly rationalized transactional thing, which is just not how human beings work. It's not how human relationships work. It's not how it's not how the body works. If you look at all the hot research now that's been done on trauma and trauma's effects on the body and the long-term effects of all that sort of thing, you think, man, like when we mess with the body, like we're playing with fire, we're playing with something that we should be much more sober and humble about. And it's the quote I've probably said a hundred times on this podcast, and I'll, I'll keep saying it, but Ian Malcolm's line from Jurassic Park, like, you're so obsessed that whether or not you could do something that you never asked whether you should. And it just strikes me that the downstream consequences are so unpredictable with some of this. So, It does raise to the fore the importance of real teaching and training for couples and for women on... God's will and design for children. And I, I don't see enough of that, certainly not in evangelical churches. There's a lot of conversation about child rearing, about roles in the home, but not a lot of conversation about loss in terms of pregnancy, in terms of infertility, not enough teaching on how to cope with infertility. So there is a kind of entitlement that almost feels very spiritual for a lot of women, for a lot of couples. They feel entitled to this ability to have a child and in our time today to have a child by any means necessary. So how do we help couples deal with infertility? How do we help them deal with the reality that you may get married and you may not have a child? How do we help them deal uh, with those who have you surrogacy in the past. Is there a reconciliation that needs to happen? Is there a narrative that needs to That's be retold? And the big question that has been raised now twice is where is the space for single people, inf infertile people in the church when we use all sorts of language and even ask questions? I don't know what it's like in evangelical churches, but in the Catholic circles, one of the first questions you're often asked as a married couple is how many children do you have? And actually, if you only have one or two, people might look a little side-eye depending what part of the church you're inhabiting. But absolutely, there needs to be a place, as I was trying to hint at a few minutes ago, about the ways in which this is absolutely necessary in some ways for the community to have people who are childless, right? Single, whatever, in whatever context, married to be able to serve the church and each other and the community and the neighborhood in just different ways than people who, are ch who have children. These are just absolutely central folks to have in the community, and we ought to better treat them as such. We, we ought to have ways, ministries, language, cultures that just reflect us much, much better. Charlie, uh, Nicole mentioned reconciliation. I think that's important because there are a lot of people, even apart from surrogacy, I'll have a lot of people in evangelical churches who will say, look, we did IVF. We didn't think about it, and now I'm at a point where I'm starting to think about the dignity of human life and realizing that there are fertilized embryos, persons, in, in our view, frozen somewhere. What do I do now? What do you say to somebody like that? So in my academic work, I've done a lot of work on the work of the philosopher Peter Singer and utilitarianism more broadly, secular utilitarian more broadly. And I was at a conference at Oxford about this Christian ethics engaging sort of utilitarianism, Peter Singer type utilitarianism a few years ago. And the Christian philosopher John Hare um, brought up just this amazing point, which is deeply relevant to the question you just asked, which is 
one reason he's not a secular utilitarian is because he understands about the need to be forgiven. And he feels really sorry for secular utilitarians who hold themselves to these really high standards, right, about ethical behavior. You got to maximize the best consequences in every situation, especially if you're an act utilitarian. Literally every act you need to do maximize consequences, you're going to fail at that almost all the time. How do you deal with that without the possibility of forgiveness? I, we are just so blessed, right, to have this intimate relationship with the Lord that assures us of our forgiveness. And we need to remind others about that as well. Even Every time I give a talk on abortion, I got to remind myself, as I'm sure many of you do, how many people in the audience are deeply touched by abortion and the profound pain that is present there and how to think about how one's remarks are going to be reflected on folks in those situations, similar here, right? I guess that's probably one of the critiques of Pope Francis's language here. He's usually pretty good at thinking about those kind of pastoral concerns, but people who are bearing that kind of pain probably hear his remarks very differently. And some people have said the organizing principle of his papacy has been the principle of mercy. And if that's true, then these remarks could have been said differently, right? And reflected that, made sure that was upfront. But it's up to us to do that as well as workers in the vineyard to really make sure folks are aware of God's unbelievable, expansive, ridiculous mercy and to welcome folks into our communities with that primarily in mind. Great. Charlie Camosi, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. And we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. Russell Moore, you, in your newsletter last week, you raised a really interesting question, a question that's been raised of you, a question that that has been raised of me, and it's a question that's been raised of a number of other journalists and kind of fellow travelers, people who've, a number of our guests who've been on the bulletin, people like David French. We're in a moment where the movement that historically has been the home for evangelicals for the last several decades the conservative right-wing conservative movement has taken this turn. And obviously we've been vocal critics of that turn here on the show. You've been vocal critic of it in a lot of places over the last few years. And so people often come up to you and they ask you, hey, why don't you ever punch left? Because there's a lot of bad stuff going on the left. Usually there's two parts to it. The one is given the stakes with what's so dangerous on the left, why not just focus there and not turn a target on the right? The the other side of it is why not 
talk about the good things that evangelicals are doing, which almost everybody being asked that is all the time, but the implied subtext is that there is, and not talk about the bad things that are going on. And there are a couple things that I think are, are wrong there. The first thing is it's self-refuting. If evangelicals shouldn't criticize evangelicals, then evangelicals can't criticize evangelicals who criticize evangelicals. (laughs) That that doesn't make uh, sense. Uh, But the other part of it is it's Stalinist. It's the idea that truth has to do with what helps our side. And you think about the way that, for instance, the left— in America reacted to the crimes of Stalin and of the Soviet Union, at least a significant part of the left for a long time, the arguments were the same. We know that we're not saying everything's great with the way Stalin's doing things, but we've got McCarthy out there coming after us. So we've got to stand strong with the the team. That is ultimately cynical and self-destructive of your own position. And for me, as a conservative, I think conservatism is too important to have it destroyed from the inside. But even more than that, I think as a Christian, if you look at the way the entire Bible, and that's one of the things that drives me crazy often about the people who are saying this, usually when it's somebody that I know, it's almost always the case this is somebody biblically illiterate, but worldview enamored. So often people who haven't spent any time in vacation Bible school. So you end up with a situation where you can't see the golden calves that Jeroboam is setting up at Dan and Bethel and a thousand situations like that are always worse than the idolatry on the outside world because it's representing God. And that's why Paul says, for instance, I don't judge those who are on the outside. I judge those who bear the name of brother. And why is that the case? Because if the church loses its distinctiveness and loses that pattern of following Christ, there is nobody else to take that place. And Mm -hmm. so that's why Jesus is constantly being criticized for not punching tax collectors. He deals very gently with Zacchaeus, relatively speaking, and with the other tax collectors who were collaborators with Rome and great sinners, but speaks really directly to the Pharisees and the scribes, to whom he was the closest to theologically. Why does he do that? He says it's because they sit in Moses' seat. And if somebody is sitting in Moses' seat representing God with something that is not godly, you can't bring to the world something you don't have anymore. Mm. And that's what's more important. So I think often the people who will say, don't criticize evangelicalism, they don't take evangelicalism seriously. Mm. If evangelicalism really matters, and if the gospel really matters, and what we're talking about here is heaven and hell, then it matters what people see when they see gospel Christianity. Nicole, one of the reasons I always laugh when I hear this objection raised is because it assumes a whole lot about what it means to be an evangelical. And it's a question that doesn't make sense with black evangelicals who historically are not aligned on the political right in the first place. So I'm curious how, when you hear that objection, what's your response to it? So first of all, Russell, I loved your article. And it did bring out two dual realities for me. One is, 
as black evangelicals, we've never felt that kind of support from white evangelicals. I think a black evangelical falls short and they are pointed to and outed and outcast and blacklisted very quickly. So there hasn't been that same kind of we support one another. So when you say I'm going to criticize the people that I'm with, it's very refreshing because it feels very truthful. At the same time, I am also a part of that kind of tribal herd mentality that says we protect our own, whether it's women always protecting women or people of color always protecting people of color. That mentality tends to come with the unspoken kind of what's what happens in the family stays in the family. And whenever that is stated, it's just a blanket for abuse. It's a blanket to cover up what's happening. And when you think about what's happening now, there's a stirring of accusations against, for example, Bishop T.D. Jakes. And there are a lot of pastors coming out saying the, the blessed phrase that is used in these situations, touch not mine anointed, do my prophet no harm. There is a place for that. I think there is a place for honoring the role that the gospel plays in a person's life. And as you've said, Russell, there's also a higher level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And if we remain silent when Christian leaders are doing blatant wrongs, then we are actually culpable of that. We We too are participants in that sin. I applaud it, but I'm also like, what this means is, we have to start taking seriously what it means to be out, to mm-hmm. not always be on the inside, to not always be heralded and appreciated. And for people like Russell, for people who have had positions of power and they choose to speak truth to power, there's a major cost with that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if everybody's ready to pay the cost. You look at what has happened. Jay Gresham Machen argued a point in the 1920s, I think is exactly right. When he was talking about liberalism, which isn't what we think of when we think of liberalism in all the various ways, he's talking about Protestant modernism, uh, basically. And he said, this isn't just another flavor of Christianity. It's something other than Christianity. And the reason for it is he said, once Christianity is a means to an end, Whatever the end is, if Christianity is the way to fight communism, then it's no longer Christianity. It is mm-hmm. instead something else. And so you will see this mentality showing up, which is why you can have people who are completely orthodox theologically, but that doesn't really matter. What really matters is whether or not you stand with our team and whether the people in Born Again Club know the first rule is not to talk about what goes on in Born Again Club. And you end up with a kind of just maddening reality that I have seen in recent years of well, he may be a rapist, but he's really good on biblical inerrance. Or, yeah, I know this person is given over to fits of rage and and abuse of the people around him, but man, he's really good on a Christian worldview. Or, yeah, we know this person is a lying demagogic thug, but he's going to work with us. <laughs> That's mafia-like. That is not Christ-like. And if you mm-hmm. look at in the Gospels, almost Every controversy that Jesus finds himself in, it is because people are trying to say, which of these herds are you going to approve and assimilate into? And his answer consistently in every way is, none of them. I am the way. And that's what's so hard, I think, to learn. I keep thinking about how many elements of our 
political discourse, of life in the church, of all these things that have changed so dramatically from eight years ago, that if they'd happened in 2014, if they'd happened in 2010, if they'd happened in 2008, how many people would be out of work today if yeah. that Overton window hadn't shifted? And I think we're numb to it. And we're numb to it, and it's the numbness that makes a lot of people, not everyone, but it's the numbness that makes a lot of people go, can we just stop talking about this? We all know. Can we just stop talking about this? Because look, these other things are really bad. These other issues are really problematic. And that's one of the things really dangerous is there is this sense of, come on, get real. Everything is this way. And right. so that means that you just don't talk about what's going on in terms of people who claim to be standing before Jesus Christ giving an account as ambassadors of his. So well, the ambassadors of Christ biblically are speaking to the world, this is what Jesus is like. And so instead, what you end up with is a very Darwinist, relativist view of morality as a tool and authority as a tool. And so it turns out a lot of the people who were telling us you really need a worldview to combat moral relativism were moral relativists who were, in fact, giving us a political program. Hmm. That's disappointing to see, but it's really dangerous if that's what the entire world sees Christianity as. So if people look at the gospel and they say, I don't want that, I can't take up my cross and follow him, okay, that uh, has happened from the, the beginning of uh, time since the fall. It's a very different thing when people look at Thor or Artemis or Baal masquerading as Jesus and say, I'm walking away from that, when they haven't seen Jesus at all. And that's what's really dangerous right now. To me, it also underscores this kind of convergence of some crises happening. I think we have a sincere leadership crisis a global leadership crisis. There is so much corruption in leadership. There's so much narcissism in leadership. There's so much poor motive. There's a lack of authentic servant leaders in the church that it's created like a, of course we expect our leaders to fall. There is such a low expectation. And then you add that to this, I feel, a very stark generational difference. I think when you look at boomers and Gen Xers, there is a sense of whatever, do your work, put your head down, do what's right in front of you and stop worrying about them, which causes us to be less inclined to out everybody. It's just, look, I'm just going to do my stuff. I know that my pastor is a moral failure. I know that this happened in our family, but just keep your head down and keep moving forward. We have raised a generation of millennials and Gen Z who are not like that. They are not going to put their heads down and just go about their business. When they find out that something wrong has happened, regardless of what's happening in their own lives, they are very quick to out it. And they have greater platforms than boomers and Gen Xers have because they've got social media, because they are so quick to go on YouTube, because they are uh, more inclined to pull out a vid and video a moment than a Gen Xer word. I have seen it myself. In the midst of a crisis, Gen Xers and boomers think, what do we do? And millennials and Gen Z pull out their phone. I don't care what we're going to do. We're going to videotape this. So then you add another crisis here. We have a discipleship crisis because we have misconstrued the idea of resilient faith. We think resilience mm. is you press through. Who cares that this is an adulterer? He's got a good word and that's resilient. No, resilience is what it looks like to cling to Jesus over and against everything else, even when the bottom falls out. You look at Jesus himself, first 
extended comments that we have from Jesus after his ascension into heaven. When you have churches that are under siege, pagan pagan polytheism is everywhere, sexual immorality is everywhere, and the risen Christ speaks to churches and says, you're in danger of losing your lampstand. And why is that the case? It's because Jesus sees what is ultimately important. And if the church, as the outpost of the kingdom of God, loses its lampstand, that is more significant than whatever is going on outside the doors in Corinth or Ephesus or Smyrna or anywhere else. Yeah, the thing I often say is it's this weird moment in history where everybody wants to be a martyr, but nobody wants to die. And so you've got this culture war narrative that's we're besieged and look at all the evil and the darkness in the world and all of this kind of stuff. And rather than taking on the attitude of the actual martyrs of the church who said, our hope is in heaven and our our trust is in Jesus and send the lions, right? Mm -hmm. It's let's see if we can work out a good deal with Caligula so that he actually fights on our side for the next four to eight years, because it would be really bad if we got Nero. We have to reject that kind of moral calculation and that's a, just a really unpopular point of view. People don't want to lose the culture war. Losing the culture war is the thing that, that, that they think is the greater crisis than searing our consciences. And also, if what you're doing is a racket or what you're doing is trying to assemble a crowd, then the easiest and best thing to do is to tell everybody everything's great with us. The book of Jeremiah is about this. There's a so-called prophet, Hananiah, whose message to the people is, the exile is not going to be long. We're about to be back home. All this is going to reverse itself. Jeremiah stands up and says, he is not telling you the truth. Now, what happens, you have people all around Jeremiah who are saying, why do you have to always say the bad stuff? (laughs) People really like it when we say that, and Jeremiah has to get up and say, the problem is not with Babylon, the problem is with us. We are the reason that this is happening. And so this is not that, it's not that somebody is doing something to us, it's that God is doing something. And the response that we need to have to that is more than just talking points and, and happy talk. I struggle to find adequate examples of repentance and restoration. So when truth is spoken to power, do you know of anyone has, or any leader or any situation where there's been an adequate sense of a leader was convicted, truth was spoken, and they took the right action? I have seen that on the the more local level uh, quite a bit. The problem is what people have figured out now is a number of things. One of them is in order to play in the really big leagues, you really need a sociopath because (laughs) those are going to be the people who are not going to be bothered by the sorts of things that are going to come against them. So that leads you to a certain result. But the other thing is people have learned that there's a power that comes with shamelessness. Refuse to apologize, refuse to acknowledge weakness and press forward. And mm-hmm. that works. Problem is works for what? It, it mm-hmm. works if there's not a God or <laughs> a judgment seat. But that's the lesson that unfortunately uh, many people have learned, which is why Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed 
and by the, the renewing of your mind. And how do you do that? Offering yourself up as a living sacrifice. That doesn't work in the short run if what you're trying to do yeah. is beast-like. We have so many stories where leaders get these confrontations, they have these issues, and then they respond with a response like that. The shamelessness, the half-apology, the blame-the-intern, whatever it is, that Again, I, I just think people have grown numb to it. And at the same time, I think like the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the witness of faithful Christians throughout history is that it endures all of it. It endures all of it and often comes through it better and more beautiful for it. But but only through repentance and, as Paul says, the open proclamation of the truth. We are people, Paul says, of sincerity, not those who are peddling the gospel. And so ultimately the question, even set aside for a minute, all the scandalous predators that we've seen in our midst, the simple lack of sincerity of hacks, of people in the rest of the world can see this. You are not telling me what you really believe before the judgment seat of Christ. You are moving along with what you believe to be your tribe. And that is not truth. It is not the way. It's not the truth. It doesn't lead to life. And people can see that. And if the church is just a sort of gathering of uh, right-thinking people, what difference does it make? It's just one more institution. If the Mm -hmm. church is the body of Jesus Christ, that matters. All right. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. On Monday, President Joe Biden spoke at the historic Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, speaking directly to what he called the Trump extreme base representing white nationalism. This location was specifically important because of what happened on June 17th in 2015, where self-avowed white nationalist, white supremacist Dylan Roof murdered nine church members, including the pastor. President Biden is the first president to speak at the church, but the church is not unfamiliar with politics in that particular pulpit. His predecessors prior to that time were Booker T. Washington speaking at Mother Emanuel in 1909. W.E.B. Du Bois spoke there in 1922. Dr. Martin Luther King spoke there in 1962. And previous pastors have been known to run for office from that particular pulpit and the like. From my own experience, it's not uncommon for the pulpits in black churches to be used in biblical relevance to advocate for the needs of people, particularly those who have been oppressed. But this particular speech from Biden on Monday felt different. I would love to hear, Dr. Russell Moore, your perspective. What exactly was Biden up to and what do you think is at stake? I have really mixed feelings about that speech, and here's why. I think it is completely appropriate to come into a church space and to talk about issues facing the world. And so to go in and to talk about 
white nationalism, talk about violent extremism and those sorts of issues is not only completely appropriate, it is needed. And so that part of what Biden was doing, I think, is exactly right. What I think was not appropriate for a church space is actual election campaigning. So chants of four more years in a church space, I do not believe are appropriate because there's a confusion of authority there. And what you end up with is a conflation of the gospel with whatever this particular political personality or platform or movement is. And I think that is dangerous no matter where it is on the spectrum. I think instead, if what Biden had done was to come in and simply speak very straightforwardly about about the dangers of white nationalism, I think that's needed. That's much of what President Obama did at the funerals, uh, the memorial services for the people who were murdered there by this white supremacist shooter. But four more years, there are lots of places that's appropriate. A church isn't one of them. Mike, there were other chants happening during that speech as well. And I was thinking as I watched the speech, when the chance, the person busted out and said, if you really cared about issues facing impoverished or oppressed communities, then you would have put a ceasefire to what's happening in Gaza. Did you catch that part? And if so, where does this fit? Is this an appropriate space to converge issues of American election and what's happening in Israel. I think this is another example of something that we've seen with a variety of political issues where people want to co-opt what is a very clear set of issues and a history around the civil rights movement for other causes. To say this cause, whether it's like gender ideology and the sort of sexual revolution-oriented stuff, this cause is just like the civil rights movement. To which we want to say, no, it's not. They're different. We're talking about very different things. I think that's very much the case here. To, to me, to, to talk about the theme of oppression, and, and this is something we'll get into on this limited series, Promised Lands, that we recorded in Israel. But to cut to it, to talk on themes of oppression, suffering, human rights, all the rest of it, and to do what often gets done in the conversation around the Israel-Palestine conflict and basically say Israel is the oppressor, period, and Palestine is the oppressed, and this is just like that. It's grotesque, particularly after October 7th, where you have these horrific attacks and these murders, and then Israel begins a war of self-defense. Yeah. So we could own another conversation. We could talk about the tactics and all the rest of that, and that's all fine and fair. But to say that... The one is just like the other. is just simply appropriate. And it's also just dishonest about who Israel is. The vast majority of Jews living in Israel came to the country as refugees because they were displaced from, not just from Europe, 60-some-odd percent of Jews in Israel were displaced from Arab countries that made them stateless, seized their property, and kicked them out. They had no place else to go, and Israel took them in. So this line that the Jews are the oppressors, again, I just I find it grotesque and inappropriate. And I find it also very consistent with this thing that we see all the time now, where the civil rights movement gets co-opted for other causes. And I think I think that's a shame for civil rights history. I think it's it clouds a very clear history. And one thing that Obama was always better at than Biden is dealing with these sort of random shouts. 
When people criticize Obama as professorial, there actually is a superpower part of that, too. And part of that is he could stop that pivot and (laughs) turn on to the next thing in really effective ways. It almost made me chuckle because there's a video that's gone a little viral of a pastor in Atlanta preaching on Watch Night. Watch Night is a traditional African-American service that happens on New Year's Eve, goes back to 1862, waiting for the Emancipation Proclamation. This particular preacher was doing what is my personal pet peeve, which is when preachers preach all the way through the New Year. Dude, stop at 1159. (laughs) But anyways, in this video clip, a person in this very large church yelled out, Happy New Year, while the pastor was preaching. And the pastor stopped and said, I know what time it is. You don't tell me to stop. I mean, had a full-on conversation oh, man, that with that person. Awesome. This is my time. I love if it. You start, you start the year when God says, and there is still a word from the Lord. Tim so. Keller told a group of us one time about uh, a lady that while he was preaching who had screamed out, yeah, but what about? And it was some question that she had. And he realized he wasn't churched, and he thought, I really have a dilemma here because I can, (laughs) if I stop and answer her question, then I'm never going to preach again because it's always just going to be yelled out Q&A. And if I don't, I'm going to be disrespecting her and not answering her question. So one of us said, what did you do? And he said that he just kept on preaching, but inserted as though he were always planning to do it. Now, some of you might be asking... And then repeated a version of her question and answered it. Brilliant. That's why you're Gandalf. This is is brilliant. The crowd dynamics. I also thought, so here you are in historic black church where call and response is the norm. So you do have to build a cadence in anticipation of an amen, a carry on, a preach on, or that's right, or something like that. Don't know about four more years, though. That's a bit much. So it it struck me, though, that this was a speech intended for Black community members who are longing for very tactical, real needs. Someone asked me yesterday, why in the world did Biden start talking about prescription drugs? Because he understands that in South Carolina, and you already had Representative Clyburn preceding him, he knew that this was an audience that needed to hear, I know the concerns that you have at your kitchen table. I know that you are talking about how are we going to keep the lights on? How are we going to pay for our bills? He understood the issues. And I said to my husband during the time, I got to commend his speechwriters because he had a very contextual speech. Mm. Now, would you take that and put it anyplace else? I don't think you can. I really, I think he intentionally had a speech that was meant for a black church. And the one part of his speech that felt to me to be the most humanizing part that I wish all politicians in some way had was when he talked about the loss of his family. And he Mm -hmm. talked about it in a context of the black church whose narrative is built on oppression and loss. And he talked about it in the context of Emmanuel, where this is a congregation that breathes and feels that sense of loss. So when he started to get choked up talking about his loss, it did strike me like this as much as I would wish another way, grief is still one of the very human things that bring us together. Yeah. So that that felt like it was, at least that portion felt very genuine to me. I am glad you mentioned at the beginning of this, Nicole, that there's an element to which this is much more common in Black churches than white churches. And I do think that's an important piece of context in all of this. At the same time, I have to say that in the light of the conversation we just had about critics of evangelicalism, never punching left, 
I was also encouraged by the number of people who I appreciate and respect who have been part of that tribe who also came out yesterday and said, come on, man, don't do this in the church. Like, we don't want this on the right. We don't want this when Donald Trump shows up at Paula White's church, and we don't want it here either. And I think there's something very important to saying, let's be consistent about asking for the pulpit to be a place of a particular kind of witness. And doesn't mean politicians can't show up in the pulpits because leaders of all sorts and all stripes come and talk and tell their stories and talk about the things that matter and all the rest of it. But I do think it seems there is consensus here. Like when it ends in four more years, you've taken it beyond exhorting the congregation. It struck me that there was an American flag in the sanctuary that is not common for black churches in general. Mm -hmm. You will hardly ever see an American flag in traditional black churches, particularly in AME churches. Do you think uh, that was just for the speech or? I don't know. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't sure if that was a permanent fixture or something specifically for the speech. I do know Emmanuel has always had a Methodist flag and an AME flag, both of which were present at the time. But it also felt I was wrestling with, is the four more years bothersome because it came from the crowd and that was the crowd's intent? Or was this honestly an election speech? We already know that Biden has had coaching from his campaign and from his base saying, you're not doing enough to get out there and put yourself out there as a candidate. So there is a part of me that feels a bit offended is not the right word, but just put off that the black church continues to be a space to elevate certain people at their own expense. But at the same time, the rich history of the black church really has become almost the kind of founding ground, the soil for a lot of political movements. When you look at, for example, Raphael Warnock, he's literally pastoring the church that was once pastored by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So you have that foundation. There's a certain acceptance about it. But based on our previous conversations, this is where it gets tricky. Because in many cases, specifically in Black churches, there is a kind of what happens in the family states, in the family mentality. So Mm -hmm. it's a sticky thing when we have this subtle convergence. I would not want to see an American flag in a predominantly white church. And it is so stark when I saw it Monday on the speech and I thought to myself, we just got to be careful. We have Mm -hmm. to reserve the right to critique. And the one thing that gave me comfort was at the end of the speech, it's like mayhem. Everybody's moving around. The president's leaving. And the pastor got up and claimed attention. I don't know if you saw that part. He said in classic black pastor voice, he said, may I have your attention? May I have your attention? He said it four times, but he said it with such pastoral authority. I said, he wants everybody to know, I don't care who speaks in this pulpit. (laughs) This is my church. You will abide by my rules. You could say, all right, so the pastor claiming uh, authority at the end shows you what this is about, but We reserve the right to critique whatever happens in the pulpit according to the Word of God. Well, thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.